Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Catherine May. Welcome to the Wintering Sessions. I am speaking to you on a beautiful, cool morning. Thankfully, after days of intense heat, something broke in the middle of the night. We didn't get a storm. We got some thunder and lightning, a few drops of rain, nothing much to speak of. But... When I woke up this morning, the air was cool and I went and sat outside until I got goosebumps. It was heaven. I'm really rubbish in the heat. I come from a family of heat lovers. I am a heat hater. I just cannot regulate my own body temperature. But today there's this amazing wind blowing. You might be able to hear it a little bit around the mic. It feels a little bit like a hot hand dryer, but there's something refreshing about it too. It's lovely. It's so weird how micro-seasonal we are, how we're affected on a moment-by-moment basis by just one or two days of weather. By the end of yesterday, I felt done, you know. <laughs> I felt like I couldn't cope with anything much at all. And I was emotional and self-pitying. <laughs> and it just seemed devastating. And today everything seems okay again. Everything seems manageable. Although clearly we have, as a world, an awful lot of work to do to try and push back against these incredibly hot days. 
So I'm on the beach. I've just been walking along the tide line, listening to the trickle of water that drains off the beach when the tide's low. It's such a tiny sound. I love to stand and just listen to it, just carefully for a little while. It's beneath everything else. It feels like a secret. There are some good parts of summer, you know. (laughs) I'm not entirely against it as a concept. I just like the cool bits, that's all. The shade. So, today we have our second re-upped episode from season one remastered and presented for your delectation and pleasure because I think lots of people missed some of those season one episodes lots of you have come later which is great hello welcome but there was some great stuff there they're all my favorites really but uh, we asked our patrons and our listeners who they might like to hear from again and this was what was voted for. So today, I'm sharing my conversation with the amazing Leia Hazard, who is a writer, a midwife, and I've just been reading a proof copy of her new book, Womb, all about the uterus, which is such, I was about to say, a fertile subject area, ha, 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 but it's such a fantastically interesting grounds to write about. And I've learned so much, but also I'm just loving the way she writes, as I did in all her previous work that I've read. So you can count me as a fan. But actually, one of the lovely things that might not be obvious about the wintering session is that some of my guests have become friends after we spoke. And Leia's one of them. She's one of the good guys in this world. And I love to have a little chat with her, although we've never met in person. That's the COVID world for you. (laughs) We keep saying that uh, one day we will actually get together in a room and talk to each other face to face, which would just be a miracle. (laughs) but maybe next year. Anyway, I commend this episode to you. I loved recording it. I love listening back to it. And I think it just has such a lot to say about how we grow and change and how we know when we can't take any more. See what you think. I'll see you a bit later. Today, I'm excited to welcome Leah Hazard, best-selling author of Hard Pushed, A Midwife's Story, and practising NHS midwife. It's really great to speak to you, Leah. Oh, it's great to speak to you too. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really delighted to. We've been chatting for a very long time, haven't we? And it's really nice Mm. to hear your voice. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. We were just discussing that Leah's accent is Scottish Connecticut, which is quite a, a fascinating mix there. Yeah, it's a bit niche. It's quite unusual. Yeah. <laughs> it's, good. it's good to have your own thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yes. 
So I came across you, Leah, when I read your book, Hard Pushed, Mm -hmm. um, which interestingly, I read just after I'd read Adam Kay's This Is Going To Hurt. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, it was quite an interesting contrast because I'd Mm -hmm. read This Is Going To Hurt in the week that my husband was in hospital with a ruptured appendix. Mm. And I'd actually found it immensely comforting because I felt Mm -hmm. as I was kind of, I was listening to it on audiobook driving to and from the hospital and I felt like it put me in contact with the people who were behind the scenes who, like, if I'm honest, I was completely frustrated with at the time, you know, the, yeah. the kind of nurses and doctors who didn't seem to be making him much better. And, you know, mm. he, he was suffering a lot. And I, I would have been much more angry had I not been able to listen to that. Oh, that's good. But in the weeks that followed, I cut a kind of another tide washed over me. And that mm. was my, my feminist consciousness re-emerging because yeah. I actually had quite a hard time when I was pregnant and giving birth. And I felt like women's voices were absent from that book mm-hmm. in a way that I don't expect you to reply to because I know you're... <laughs> but yeah. when I yeah. read your book, I kind of punched the air because it was still such great storytelling, so warm and funny and moving. But also you are a kick-ass advocate for women in the maternity ward. Is that well, fair to say? <laughs> thank you. I mean, I wouldn't be the best person to answer that, but I hope so. I think that's the job of every midwife, really. Um, and certainly people have asked me about that book and I have read it. Um, <laughs> and I maybe that's where I should leave it. No, I mean, I can understand why some people have really enjoyed it and why it's been a huge success. And I can also understand why some people have been upset by it. Mm. Um, and have felt that maybe another voice was needed. So I'm pleased if I can provide that voice or another voice. And yeah, I think it's really important in anything I write to demonstrate respect for women. And that doesn't mean that we have to be worthy all the time and very sort of virtue signaling and all the rest. But, um, (laughs) you know, we can have a laugh, but we have to be respectful and mindful of who is at the centre of that story. And it's women. So yeah, I hope that's come through. Yeah, I I think it really does come through. I think that from the other side, people are fascinated by midwives because Mm -hmm. you are present at one of the most dramatic and yet entirely normal moments of human life. But when I say normal, it's different for everybody every time. And I I think that there's this sense that you guys kind of look into a space that most of us don't really understand, even if we've been in it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's completely true. And it strikes me all the time. And it should strike me all the time, you know, when I'm with a woman who's labouring or who's having issues in pregnancy for whatever reason, I I kind of have to stop myself sometimes and think like, what, they let me do this? Like this, (laughs) this, This is really intimate and visceral and special and risky um and I I don't just mean physically risky I Mm. mean um, emotionally risky and yeah it's it's a huge privilege to to be in that role so I'm very grateful for that. Yeah and it's it would be hard not to mention at the moment that we are still in the middle of lockdown I suspect we will be in some kind of lockdown or some kind of pandemic alertness when this podcast goes out unless something changes very dramatically yeah um and I think it would be remiss of me not to ask you about how you're finding it at the moment is it is it becoming business as normal or does everything still feel very strange Uh, yes and no 
at the beginning, by which I mean sort of middle of March to end of March, we were anticipating this huge tsunami of sick women because we were looking at what was happening mm. in the rest of Europe and even starting to happen down in London. And we thought, right, okay, um, I'm I'm up in Glasgow and we thought, okay, th- this is coming and this is going to be horrific. And every day in the hospital, things were changing in terms of there was talk of reorganising wards and um, new pathways and protocols. And there it did become very quiet for a couple of weeks um, in the triage department where I work because the only women coming in were women who really needed to come in there wasn't so much of the kind of worried well and all the other right you know probably a good part of our business is is people who actually are completely fine <laughs> and then uh yes we have had some sick women not as many as we feared but some but on the whole no the the workload the sort of quality and quantity of what we're seeing now is right up to where it was so right. <laughs> very very busy so my last shift was friday night and it was just myself and another midwife in the ward, as it always is um, at night in triage. And I think we had eight or nine women in labour and maybe another five or six women with different things that they were coming in with. So plenty. Yeah, it's busy. Plenty yeah. to, be do- to be doing with. That's actually a really great point to talk about how you became a midwife because you weren't always, were you? You you had a whole career before this. Yeah, I had a sort of mini career at the beginnings <laughs> of a career. Um, I worked in telly, which was as surprising to me as it was to anybody else. So I was a researcher for sort of arts and factual programming and documentaries um, at BBC Scotland. And I worked for an independent company for a while as well. And when I had my first daughter, who's she's now um, 17, I took some time off and then I came back part time. And I could see very quickly that I would hit the glass ceiling very fast and that the only women who seemed to succeed in telly at that time were women who either didn't have children or had clearly made a conscious decision not to spend very much time at home and really to be at work at all hours and really available all the time. And that wasn't really for me. And at the same time, I'd had this huge life-changing experience of um, being pregnant and giving birth and it kind of blew my world apart in a way nothing about it was anything I had prepared for or anticipated and I think any any woman who becomes a mother will say that that kind of draws your priorities into quite sharp relief and changes how you feel about things but for me it was it was really I don't want to say like an identity crisis but it it was an identity challenge for sure. So talk me through that time. I mean, so you're, I guess media jobs are full of people who are ambitious and have always wanted to be in them, you know, and therefore are often willing to make whatever sacrifices it takes. Mm -hmm. And so you're back in that world with a a tiny baby and kind of thinking, how on earth do I confront this? What what, What do I do? Yeah, well, I think a big part of it for me was that the birth to begin with didn't go the way I had expected or was told it would happen. Um, silly me. So I had um, I had long labour and then I had an emergency section and that was obviously really difficult in terms of recovery and breastfeeding didn't work and I wasn't loving every minute of my life as I kind of thought maybe I would. Loved my baby obviously and you know wouldn't change that for the world Absolutely. but um, it just felt a bit kind of exploded and my time wasn't my own my body was completely different mm. 
And at the same time as the sort of weeks and months went on, I was meeting other women who had had babies, you know, whether we'd been in sort of antenatal classes together or or met them through other groups and things. And everybody that I met seemed to have had an awful time. And I just thought, <laughs> why? Why is it like this? We we were not sold this experience. This this yeah. was not what we were told about. So and I really started to think, oh, surely there's some way this can change. Can I change it? Is there some way that this can be made better? And I did actually at that time start to think about retraining, but I had just gone through four years of university in America and a year of master's degree studies in mm. the UK. And the thought of going back to sit in a classroom and being told what to do, it just was not on. <laughs> it just was not, that was not the time in my life to be doing that. So um, I did go back to work and then I realized no, this was not for me. So I did think about midwifery, but I then found out about doulas, who for anyone listening who doesn't know what a doula is, it's just like a birth partner, really. And I thought, yeah, that, that's something I could do and I can work it around my family. How so, interesting. Yeah. So it's just a lay birth partner. It's like a cheerleader for pregnant and birthing people. Mm. It's just emotional and practical support. It's completely non-clinical. Um, it's a very old role, although we're calling it something different now. Yeah, so I, I did some training around that and I was a doula for six years supporting women in home births and hospital births and doing some postnatal support as well. Wow. So, so that, yeah, that so was it's like a halfway house almost to becoming a midwife. It's, it's probably quite a yeah. good, um, good early preparation, I suppose. You get used to being in that space. It was, yeah. You get used to being in that space. You have that fundamental respect for women and commitment to advocating for women without any of the clinical responsibility, um, which sometimes <laughs> I look at and think, hmm, <laughs> that was nice. But ultimately with that, I did get to the point where I thought, no, I want the whole package. I want to be able to provide the whole, you know, all the care. And uh, I had another child. So I decided, yeah, that maybe now is the time to go back to school. So that's wow. what I did. Yeah. So how old were your children when you retrained? Because that must have been really tricky. Yeah, it was pretty horrendous at the start, to be honest. Um, <laughs> this is a crazy thing to do. I get emails all the time and messages and things from women saying, oh, I've got two young children. Should I go back and, you know, retrain? And I'm like, mm, yeah, that sounds great. So it was 10 years ago this year that I started training. So my kids would have been seven and three. Wow. I'm not going to lie. That was hard. That was really challenging because they just knew me as somebody who was around most of the time. Mm. Um, I was on call for births from time to time, but mostly that was like when they were sleeping or, you know, times when I could sort of melt away without too much disruption. So yeah, it was a huge adjustment for all of us, but we, we got there in the end. Wow. I mean, I, I guess it's the kind of job I'd be too scared to do because I am terrified of, I don't know, doing the wrong thing, um, which is why I hide behind a desk and write. And I still yeah. get terrified even then. But mm, I'm pretty scared of that too, though, to be fair. Yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah. obviously, I think probably having a healthy yeah. respect for that is, is good. But I imagine that those first years when you're a trained midwife and you're practicing on your own as being quite tense, actually, is that just me projecting that idea? Onto no, it? That no it not at all. Absolutely terrifying. I think when you're a student um, and most midwifery degrees are, are three years, you sort of do develop some confidence, of course, and you need to over the three years. And then the fear becomes real just when you're about to qualify and you think, oh, you know, like I'm about to be thrown out of the nest and now it's mm -hmm. me. And then you do. One day you're just chucked in a room with a woman, as simple as that. And it's like, right. 
okay, Off you, you do it. Off you go. Um, I can't and- imagine the fear. I, I trained, I didn't train as a teacher. I did the on-the-job learning route, the uh, graduate training programme to become a secondary teacher. And so there was I, I think I was 24. And what happens when you do that is the first day you go into a classroom and you teach and you've had no training or experience whatsoever. And I can remember that moment of standing in the staff room and my legs not wanting to walk me to my first class. Yeah, I can imagine. I was so scared because I taught sixth form. I was so conscious of how old they were and how close to my age they were. Yeah. And they knew that. And Mm -hmm. they were ever so nice to me. But after a week, they said, we knew you were new because (laughs) when you wrote your name on the board, it was enormous. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Rookie mistake, Catherine. Yeah, it's obviously really really obvious. But yeah, so I can only imagine what it must be like to some, you know, for something that's much more life and death than teaching some A-level student psychology. It's scary. And I think also it just depends what the working culture is like around you and yeah, I mean, all hospitals and birth centres and things are different, but the place where I work does have an element of sort of macho, although it's all women, sort of tough talk. Mm. Um, It's quite intimidating, or at least it can be to a newly qualified midwife. And your face has to fit and your behaviour has to toe a certain line. Uh, And it really is like living on another planet as soon as you go through that sort of airlock of the hospital doors you're in the zone you're in another place and I still you know I'm seven years qualified this year I still kind of think "Mm, will I fit in at some point you know I know I can do the job and I have a great team that I work with and we all support each other but that's I think as as scary as the actual clinical side of it yeah I can only imagine I mean I I think the thing that you most want when you're the person giving birth is to look at your midwife and to see certainty and confidence. Mm. Because, I mean, you know, I suppose it must be different for women who have multiple children, but I've only done it once. And I just wanted someone to tell me what to do because I had no Mm -hmm. clue. And I had deliberately avoided the books because I thought I just didn't think Mm -hmm. they'd help. And I still, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. that was the wrong decision, actually. Yeah, well, they didn't do me any favours. So (laughs) you probably did the right thing. But yeah, it's interesting. Every woman has a different way of responding to that challenge. So some women do want that really kind of firm hand and, you know, tell me what to do. What would you do? What should I do now? Mm. Some women don't want to communicate at all. Oh, and really? that's completely oh, that's fine. Oh, for sure. Uh-huh. And for some, you you just sort of feel your way through it together and you really have to develop a knack for sussing out very quickly what that woman's needs are. And sometimes you do it and sometimes you can't. And, and that's OK. You can only try your best. Do you get sworn at a lot? Sometimes, very <laughs> seldom. It's, it's usually the guys that are on the sharp end of the, the swearing. Um, <laughs> but now I have to say at the minute, and I think this is the case for most units around the UK, men aren't actually allowed in our department. Right, yeah. And I, I'm not really going to go into whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, <laughs> but it's much calmer and there's much less swearing, I will say. So, and Yeah. The- are women kind of coming out the other end of it, commenting on what it was like without their husband or partner? Sorry, I shouldn't say husband. That's a terrible thing to say, really, you know, in that's 2020. Okay. But um, mm-hmm. are, are women kind of saying about whether they wish they were there or whether they Because my, my mother chose not to have my dad there when she gave birth. And I kind of, I really did reflect on it when it came to my time because I kind of thought, I bet of me just wants to get on with it on my own. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I mean, ideally, women aren't in our department for too long because we really just assess them and give them some support before they go to labour ward. Yeah. The partners can join them there. But yeah, I think it's very subjective. I think some women do seem grateful to just have the focus of the midwife and there's no extraneous distraction or having to manage somebody else's fear, mm. somebody else's expectation. But obviously some some partners are great and you know maybe they've been labouring at home together for days before they've even come in and, yeah. and the partner's been a great support and then all of a sudden that isn't there. So it's interesting. It's going to be really interesting when this all if this all ever <laughs> settles down to see how people feel about that aspect of things, whether that will change. I think there's going to be so many reckonings and I, I think we're going to be fascinated by it for years to come, actually. And I think it will change us, but none of us know how yet. It's still yeah. mm-hmm. all floating up in the air. I'm endlessly reading about all these different experiences and, and you know, just hearing things from friends, terrible things, amazing things. It's mm-hmm. such a huge moment in human history. I think it's really interesting just to connect it back to your book that, you know, a lot of people are looking at their experience just now and and thinking, am I wintering? Am I enduring this really horrible thing? Mm. And, and of course, some people are much more than you, you or I. Oh, um, but some people are also asking themselves, do I kind of like it? Yeah. <laughs> am, am, yeah. I, am I kind of enjoying parts of this or maybe learning things about myself? So if you have the privilege of perspective to be able to ask those questions, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty yeah. interesting. It is, it's this moment of pause, I think, where I always talk about that. I don't know if everyone will relate to this piece, but the piece of art by Cornelia Parker, The Exploded Shed, and I remember going to see that when it was in the Turner Prize, I don't know, probably 20 years ago or more now. And you walk into a room and you feel like time has stopped because there's just this, a shed that literally she had someone explode, but she mm-hmm. suspended all the pieces of it hanging in the air around you. And for me, it was an uncanny moment where I literally felt like I'd walked into stopped time. Mm. And I I think for me that I keep coming back to that as a metaphor for moments like this and those wintering moments as well which is that time has paused for a while nothing's happening and Mm. in that space our fears can completely overwhelm us and they so often do but also we can reflect and think about changes we want to make it's a it's a sort of very revolutionary moment with both Mm. good and bad coming in and I I think that's where loads of stuff's happening at the moment yeah yeah and I think as women and as mothers so often I'm sure you probably like me have had times in your life where you thought oh god I wish this would just stop like there's just (laughs) too much to do and we have to do homework and cook dinners and go to music lessons and you know, manage our own stuff and get our own things done and try and make some money. And I wish it would just stop. And now it's like, hmm, okay, yeah. it's all stopped. You know, what can we make of this? Let's and watch some more Teen Titans go. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, some of the stuff we've been doing is just kind of getting by day to day. And I think for the first month, apart from going to work as a midwife, on my days off, I just allowed myself to just vegetate and mm. just had no expectations of myself or my family or, you know, trying to be productive, really. I just let go. Yeah. And it did feel like pressure's off in a lot of ways, I think. And that's yeah. uh, that's really unusual for me. You know, I, I normally feel very like I'm supposed to be getting out there and doing this and that. And there's nothing to do. 
there is absolutely nothing that can be done. And Mm -hmm. I was about to say it's luxurious, but it's not even that. It just is. It's just Mm -hmm. a time when we are acting, you know, (laughs) making it up as we go along. And there's something about the quality of that that I'm quite liking, if that's Mm -hmm. a terrible thing to say. (laughs) Yeah, I, I feel so conflicted because obviously this is a crisis that we wouldn't wish on ourselves or anyone in any way and having you know having looked after women who are ill and seeing the disruption of the world in general I wish it wasn't happening Mm. but at the same time I'm kind of really like that all I need to do in a day is maybe you know I can get up early and do some writing if I'm up to it if I'm not fine I can spend lots of time making nice food I can eat lots of nice food. Yeah, um, I don't have to run my kids around a million and one classes. And then the days when I'm at work, I go to work, I help women, I come home. It's simpler. Yeah, I'm kind mm. of liking that. And yesterday we went out and about in the sort of area where we live and lockdown here has eased slightly, although not as much as where you are. Um, <laughs> it's really, <laughs> yeah, it not quite. It has eased here, yeah. Yeah. Well, what was weird for me yesterday was there weren't sort of hordes of people but there were lots of people out walking about and sort of queuing for coffees and things mm. and lying out in the park and it can make me a little bit uncomfortable yeah and I kind of wanted to go back to how it was and I know that's awful because that's not you know the reason for why it was the way it was yeah, is not a good one terrible but no I know exactly what um, you mean. Yeah. but I think that's why I've kind of stayed in the house all day today <laughs> yeah I, I yeah. actually I, I remember at the beginning of it I thought I you know I felt really restricted and I thought what am I going to do without being able to go out at weekends and do this and that and now I think well, what did we used to do at weekends I can't imagine what we were so busy with I, I think I've quite happily jettisoned a lot of rushing around that I won't go back to now and I'm, I'm very glad yeah. to do it Mm. So back to you. Sorry, we've, it's hard to have a conversation at the moment without going into pandemic talk. Is there? Oh, completely, <laughs> completely. There, we, we've done it. We've, we've I, I hope nailed it this now. Will sound quaint in a year's time, and everyone will be out raving again. I don't know. I, <laughs> I won't be. Yeah. But then I never was in the first place. That's why. We'll be back to Ramona in a minute, but I just wanted to take a short pause to tell you about a workshop I'm holding in Rockport, Maine, I know, American soil, on the 8th of August this year. Um, I will be working with the brilliant Alyssa Altman to deliver a day retreat courtesy of Barn Swallow Books. And the workshop is called On Comfort. It's a whole day to join us and explore what comfort, sustenance and homecoming mean to you. So I'll be working with the group first to explore feelings of being at home, of being comfortable and cosy and how we can create an environment that makes us feel safe and from which we can springboard into the work we need to do in the outside world. Alyssa will be working to explore what food means, the idea of comfort food, but reimagined. So thinking about how we can truly sustain our minds and bodies through the act of cooking, preparing and eating food, which I know is such a complicated issue for so many of us. There will be a light lunch included 
And at the end of the day, a lovely communal supper so we can all get together and break bread or something else if you're gluten-free. We know how it goes. There's a link in my bio to explore more about the workshops, but do take a look quickly because I know they're going to book up quickly. It's the only workshop I'm running on American soil this year and it's my first ever. So if you can come, please do. I'd love to see you there. Okay, back to Ramona. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So... One of the things that comes across really strongly in your book is your engagement with the different women that you come across and meet and their their different stories and lives and hardships. Mm-hmm. How difficult is it for you to leave that behind when you come home? Does it does it prey on your mind or are you able to have that separation? Yeah, it can be quite difficult. I mean, you were saying you have the fear of doing things wrong. And I think mm. that's a fear that follows every midwife or every healthcare practitioner when they've left the hospital, you know, there's always the nagging feeling of, oh, did I sign for that drug that I gave? Or, you know, maybe I sent her to labour ward at the wrong time. Or was that examination actually right? Or maybe she was only two centimetres and I thought she was eight centimetres and I've done it all wrong and I'm a horrible midwife. And, you know, everybody, I think, feels that way on their days off. But some women's stories obviously affect me on a deeper level. And and some of those are the ones that I wrote about. Mm. Um, I think there's this saying that every doctor has their own personal graveyard in their head because it's the the patients they couldn't save. Um, And I think that midwives carry a similar thing, not a graveyard, thankfully, mm-hmm. but, a, but a little collection of women who have really touched them and made them question things. Um, maybe we've connected with them or maybe they've really challenged us in some way. And I definitely have that. And I, I definitely think of those women often. I think that's normal. Yeah. I think that's healthy. I think that's human, actually. I think that that's not a a negative thing necessarily. I I think if your work didn't leave a mark on you, it wouldn't seem right somehow. Yeah. The trick is just not letting it overwhelm you, I guess. And there certainly have been times on days off when all I can think about is something that's happened yeah. during my last shift. And it really, really niggles me. But that is just part of being 
an adult in the world, I guess, we, you know, we all have yeah. <laughs> things, you know, we all have to encounter other people in our work generally, um, or, you know, just in our daily lives. It's and we all have upsets. True. And, yes, we do. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe for me, it's fair to say at times the stakes are maybe a little bit higher, but yeah. still, you know, we all, we all go through that in our own way. And the trick is just not to let it rankle and to to try and work it out somehow. So I'm still learning about that. But there was a point that you wrote about where the stress began to really get to you, I think. Yeah, I mean, as I sort of went through the first few years of my career, I work in a really busy hospital. We have about six and a half thousand births a year. That's an incredible and number, isn't it? When yeah, you... it's, a little, it's a lot of babies. That's a lot of days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot a day. And we don't always have the staffing levels that mm. I would like. I think it's okay to say that. And you, as a working midwife, quite often your own needs come way down the pecking order in terms of what has to get done that day and, you know, what can get done. And most of my career, I've worked in its triage department, which is very busy and fast paced. It's like I describe it as like A&E for pregnant people. So it's always changing. It's always acute, which is part of what makes it interesting and, and exciting, but also sometimes what makes it impossible. Yeah. So, yeah, I wrote about that sort of gradual feeling of pressure building. And I wrote about one particular night when there's a really busy shift and the the women just kept coming and coming and coming and the hospital was full and and there were discussions about closing the hospital and, you know, to to new patients. Mm. And that wasn't done for one reason and another and just became untenable. And I um, had what I now know you can see was, you know, a panic attack, which probably sounds pretty boring and run-of-the-mill to most people but um, they're never boring and run-of-the-mill when you're having them though no they're not and it was the first time at work that I just felt completely paralyzed and that is deeply shameful for somebody who goes to work so she can help people and put herself last and always be competent and always be effective and efficient and safe Mm. Um, and I couldn't and you know, there have been times before and since that night when I've been able to kind of pull myself back from that edge and kind of pull it together and just right. keep going. But I just couldn't that night and I had to leave. But that's um, the problem with feelings when you're pushing them down. They just at some point yeah. will all come flooding up when you don't want yeah. them to. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I'd probably been doing that for a while on other occasions as well. And that's why on that night I was not in control mm. and, and, I, and I had to go home. And yeah, I mean, the only word that keeps coming into my mind when I think about that is is shame, which is ridiculous rationally, yeah. because I know, you know, I shouldn't be ashamed and I shouldn't be embarrassed. And that's just normal. And I, I do all kinds of this other sort of advocacy around mental health to mm. tell other people that it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was not in that place on that night. And um, it took a long time for me to accept that that was okay. Mm. And actually looking back, that night probably was kind of transformative in how I treat myself and look after myself. And then I did something really silly and I wrote about it. Yes. <laughs> told everyone that it happened. Um, and that kind of maybe in a way diffused it a bit. Because at first when I when I thought about writing the book, I thought, right, this is just going to be a book about women's stories and midwifery in general. It's not going to be about me because that's boring and nobody wants to hear that. But then the more I started writing, the more I thought, no, I'm actually doing my colleagues an injustice if I don't, if I'm not mm. honest about the pressures we're all under, because I'm certainly not the only person ever to have had a night like that. And I think it's um, hardest for carers and people who 
see themselves as the as the person that sorts out out the problem. I think it's often hardest for for people like you to acknowledge when you're suffering yourself. You you want to be the person that carries on solving it. You're that's part of your identity somehow, and it's very undermining yeah. when you have to admit you can't cope. Yeah, absolutely. Because all of a sudden, all those skills, you know, it doesn't matter if you can make up an IV pump of a really fancy, you know, <laughs> antibiotic. It doesn't matter if you can suture somebody's perineum or catch a baby or, you know, guide someone through a 12-hour labour. Totally irrelevant if mm. you are then sat frozen on a chair in the tea room, unable to even chew your dinner. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of where, where it was. But I mean, yeah. I, I had to learn this myself and I, you know, I didn't have that one moment of crisis, but by the time I got to have my autism diagnosis when I was 39, mm-hmm. I had been through, you know, decades of panic attacks, anxiety, dropping out of major things in life, jobs, you know, yeah. <laughs> university. Call- I tried to drop out of university. They didn't let me, damn it. But um, <laughs> I, I gave it a bloody good go. You know, missing out on all sorts of experiences. And what was really transformative for me was to be able to say finally after all those years I couldn't cope with what life was throwing at me Mm -hmm. and until then I was so resistant to being able to say that because if I was modeling myself as a a neurotypical person then there was no reason why I shouldn't be coping with it like what what was wrong with me I mean I'd, I'd literally been to counsellors where I'd had a few months of talking to them they finally leant over inside and said is there an abuse story here? You know, like oh, they, were, no. they were kind of <laughs> yeah. waiting for to find out what the hell was wrong with me. That like was, the big reveal. Yeah, you know, yeah. because I was acting like somebody who was carrying terrible trauma that that hadn't mm. happened, and so oh. it was kind of a mystery. But having that that moment of revelation has changed a lot for me. It doesn't mean to say that I cope perfectly with everything, but I've learned to let myself off the hook and. Yeah, it kind of works actually. It kind mm-hmm. of works to say, do you know what? This is just more input than you can cope with at the moment, and you need to go and sit down in a quiet room and and recover yourself. Yeah, definitely. And I think you know, I'm sure if you had a friend who was feeling that way, or your son was feeling that way, mm. that would be the first thing you would say. Yes, yeah. you would be so kind to them, and you'd say, right, this is too much for you why don't you just remove yourself from this or yeah. take a break or look at it in another way? But I think for some of us, and again, I don't know if it's like a woman thing or a mother thing or, or an overachiever for, thing or just an overachiever yeah. perfectionist <laughs> thing. Yeah. Or, or all of the above. It takes a long time to, to think, oh, right, maybe I can actually be nice to myself in that way too. Yeah. Um, it's really difficult and there shouldn't be any shame attached to it, but there is, I think. Oh yeah. I, I think we, we all kind of carry that, that shame of those moments when we've not managed it, but we, I hope all don't don't believe that other people should carry it. So yeah. what did you change after that? What what did you learn from that moment and what adjustments have you made to to help you to not get to the point where your head's about to explode in the future? I think again it's a process and it's still unfolding. I think I'm much quicker to recognize now when I'm starting to feel like that. Mm. And the only thing to do is slow down and now It's not always possible in my workplace because if there are six women in the waiting room all needing to be seen in that moment, it's not much you can do about that. But just slowing down incrementally is very seldom a dangerous thing to do. Mm. Um, 
and realizing that it's okay not to see all the women at once. It's okay to ask somebody else to maybe do something for you if they have a minute. It's actually quite important to make sure you eat and drink something and go to the toilet. And I know these are really daft sounding things, but it would be so easy to go through a 12 hour shift and not have a break and just try and see every single person single handedly who comes through the door. And also just about on days off, recognizing that checking in and and realizing maybe I'm not feeling great. Maybe I'm feeling quite anxious or, Mm. you know, really I should force myself to go for a walk or a run or or write something, um, even if it's not very good. Um, and, <laughs> well, there's uh, a whole other source of stress now that you're a publisher writer. It's, no, it's that, not casual oh, anymore. <laughs> God, yeah, the dreaded second album. Here it comes. <laughs> yeah, so it's just about having better self-awareness, I think. Because again, if that was happening to one of my children, I could see it a mile off. Mm. And I could see, oh, you know, I don't think you look right in yourself and what's going on, how are you feeling, slow down a bit. But in myself stupidly it's taken 42 years to to learn those cues and to acknowledge them they take long time those lessons and yeah I, I I'm exactly the same as you you know if I saw somebody else ready to pop I would say are you getting enough sleep put yourself to bed early have a glass of water you know yeah, yeah simple ex- things yeah eat something you know they're exactly the things that we skip when we are stressed it's it's mm-hmm. fascinating we all need a mother following us around and and sort of yeah checking in I think sometimes or we have yeah. to be our own one of those unfortunately we do I mean that's a whole other podcast for another day to be honest <laughs> about kind of <laughs> who's been mothered and in what way and yeah. and how that affects how we look after ourselves but yeah I've had to learn a bit of that and and mm. be kind to myself in that way but I feel like for you it has led to a kind of leadership in your field not necessarily in kind of the technicalities of being a midwife, but in that radical vulnerability and in being able to talk about the humanity behind that that uniform and that that role? Um, I guess so. I mean, I, I think I'm a bit of an unlikely person or in myself, I feel like an unlikely person to be a leader in that area. But I've seen so many colleagues and students struggle with these very same things. And we're working so hard in the NHS now and at all times that, again, not recognising these things and sort of amplifying these concerns seems like a disservice to everybody else on my team. It's mm. it's not really about me, but if I can share my experience and let the world know how hard we're all working and how sometimes it affects us, then I'm glad. I'm you know I think that's that can only be a good thing. Yeah, it seems really important to me. So. Finally, tell me about what you're working on next in those, you know, few oh, minutes God. you can grab. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So this is a world debut exclusive, uh, almost. Um, yeah. So as we were just saying before you pressed record, uh, when lockdown hit, I was days away from selling my next big, exciting nonfiction project. And this was like the big one. This was like Jaws of my life. This was, um, this was going to be the one that was going to make it I felt so without giving too much away because maybe it'll happen at some point and it would have involved a lot of research and a lot of traveling and and looking at sort of birth work around the world but the one trip I did manage to do as part of my research before this all happened was I went to Sweden and I watched a uterus transplant Um, and yeah I was absolutely fascinating and I was getting into this whole world of womb transplants and what they are and how they work and how women feel about them or why they might have them and what birth might look like in the future. And unfortunately, the the book that that was going to be a part of, um, it looks like it might never happen. (laughs) But at the same time, 
when I was kind of gestating that and starting to write it up and stuff, I had an idea for a novel about two sisters, one of whom gives gives her uterus to the other. And wow, that's a fascinating premise. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it, <laughs> it happens, it has happened. And when I went to watch this particular transplant in Sweden in November, it was two sisters uh, on the table, as it were. And I thought, wow, that is pretty cool and also pretty messed up in a lot of ways in terms of where that could take you if it all went wrong and if you didn't maybe psychologically manage that very well. So that started off as the premise and now it's become this thing, (laughs) this monster, this this novel that's, it's about what it means to be a sister, but also to be a mother. Um, It's about women's relationships with their bodies. Mm. It's about Scotland, strangely enough. Um, I found myself researching all kinds of flora of Scottish islands and 11th century monasteries and all kinds of weird stuff where I never thought it would take me. But it's great. I'm actually, when I'm not hating what I write, I'm loving it. (laughs) I'm loving the the process of it. That's part of the process, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so watch this space. I'm enjoying it and, and hoping to have it a bit less horrible in a few months' time. Oh, well, that just sounds absolutely amazing and I cannot wait to read it. I hope you get some some good time to get yeah, on thank with you. it. It's really exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to me today. I am so, so delighted to actually speak to you, not in person, because no, nothing can be in person. I know. I think that's the, that's the gift of this time, that actually we can sidle up to each other and go, oh, I could Skype you. We don't have to. We'd have to be yeah. in the same city, you know. Yeah, it's great. No, thank you so much. I know we were meant to meet in person the week oh, that this all kicked off. But I this know. is this is great. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's really good. And um I'd just like to recommend your book yet again to the readers um Hard Push, which I just loved the moment I read it, and I'm sure loads and loads of other people will too. And indeed loads and loads of people have already. And we'll look forward to your next work. Yeah, hopefully. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Leah. Bye bye. The day's warming up a bit here now. (sighs) The white clouds that were covering the sky this morning are gradually burning off. There's a beautiful blue sky. But I think I'll be hiding indoors again come lunchtime. Probably for the best. But, you know, like I'm always talking about how to embrace the rhythms of the year in the winter. And it's true of the summer too. It's maybe not so much part of our culture to talk about how difficult the summer can be, how interminable it can feel. How, although it has the kind of luxury associated with it, you know, holidays and sitting outside pubs and restaurants drinking rosé. <laughs> it's also a very difficult time for lots of people. I think it's a time when it feels out of place to be sad, to be grieving, to be anxious, to be depressed, to be recovering from something that's happened to us. I don't think summer and summer culture welcomes that. And so that can be really hard. And I think for some of us, the way that there's a natural pause in the year here 
Because even if we're not on holiday, often the people we work with or that we know are, everything can feel very disrupted. And I don't really cope very well with that disruption. It breaks up my routines. It makes everything seem slow and complicated. And I often get really frustrated with myself because like every other human being I have to slow down a bit in the heat I don't get as much done and I don't always clock why that is I just get frustrated that my to-do list isn't going down but these things have their natural break and it'll come that moment of acceptance That moment of, ah, screw it, actually. (laughs) But honestly, we do have to surrender to the constant change that's happening across the year. I'm going to be in America for Lamas this year. Lamas is the uh, sort of residual pagan festival that happens around about the beginning of August, the 1st of August which in traditional culture, uh, including in church culture, Church of England culture, it's a derivation of loaf mass. It's a time when we mark the beginning of the harvest. We're perhaps more familiar with the harvest festivals that we all attended at school, maybe, or is that just me? I went to a country primary that marked the end of the harvest. But Lamas is the beginning of the harvest period. It's a time when the grain is ripe, a time when we think about gathering that in before it is eaten by the mice. And last year I baked my first Lamas loaf, which is a wheat sheaf-shaped loaf. Uh, that is traditional in some parts of England at this time of year. You can have a look at it on my Instagram feed. And so this year I'm going to bake mine early and I'm still going to bake it because it's another lovely way to mark this turn in the year and actually to process some of the difficulties that come at this point. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying summer or at least surviving it wherever you are in the world. I want to say a massive thank you to Leah Hazard for the interview she gave a while ago, but for letting us rebroadcast it. Thank you to the Patreons, who I've been having really interesting discussions with lately about how our community is about to change for the better, I hope. I'll let you all know about that soon. Thank you to Megan and producer Buddy, who look after this podcast so well, keep it running. And I have been working really hard on its reinvention for the next season. I'm hoping to share more with you soon. Take care, everyone. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.